Support for The Trend comes from members of the local programming fund. I'm Micah Schweitzer. More than a fifth of Americans are now unaffiliated with a religion. That's the highest number in recent history, and it's particularly those under the age of 30 who are leaving or perhaps even never joining the faith. One reason is a perception that the church is anti-science. Henderson's First United Methodist Church is exploring the relationship between science and religion this Sunday with noted astronomer Dr. Owen Gingrich. He's a former research professor of astronomy and the history of science at Harvard and a senior astronomer emeritus at the Smithsonian Astrophysical Observatory. He even has an asteroid named in his honor, and he joins us from his home in Massachusetts. Dr. Gingrich, welcome to The Trend. I'm glad that we can get connected at the speed of light, which I think is what it takes these electrical impulses to put us in the same room. Exactly. And speaking of the room here in the studio, the senior pastor of First United Methodist Church in Henderson, Dr. James Wofford, welcome. Thank you. And let me begin with you. Uh, I know that it's, it's a broad brush to paint the Christian church as a monolithic organization, but is the church anti-science? Well, it shouldn't be, and I don't like to think that it is. Uh, it's certainly, the scriptures, uh, what we found our, our faith on, uh, aren't anti-science. And um, I think, uh, as Dr. Gingrich is the expert on uh, throughout history, many of the great scientists have been people of faith. And you yourself, Dr. Gingrich, are a person of faith. You're a, uh, a Mennonite. Uh, what's that like to be... Uh, working within the scientific academy as someone uh, with faith? Is, is the scientific academy anti-religion? Well, there are certainly a few people who are very articulate uh, atheists these days, uh, and uh, uh, there are a lot of people who you just don't know about. You go down the corridors of uh, the observatory, and you don't say, good morning, do you believe in God today? That's uh, just not a typical subject. And so you find out by surprise every once in a while that uh, somebody is singing in a church choir or uh, involved in some way you had no clue about. But I have found among uh, famous unbelievers like Carl Sagan and Stephen Jay Gould, uh, that they knew where I stood, and they were respectful of it. So I never got any ad hominem remarks from them. How do science and faith relate for you? I know you've said that science doesn't prove God, but it's compatible with God. Yes, I would uh, uh, think very strongly that that's the case. That is to say, it's very difficult to take scientific things and say, this now proves the existence of God. That's uh, uh, not something I would try to sell. So what is the role uh, of science and what is the role of religion in, in creating a picture of the world that we live in? And I guess in your case, certainly beyond the world we live in, the cosmos. It's very different now than it would have been uh, 500 years ago when there was a very closed universe envisioned by everybody with a sphere beyond the stars and planets, which was the uh, domain of, of God, the angels, and the blessed. Uh, 
that's all disappeared, of course. And we have to think of these things in a new light because of what science and exploration have brought to us. For example, in a way you don't think about nowadays, uh, when uh, Columbus and the other early explorers came to the New World and found there were people in it, it was a great puzzle. Is it possible that the Indians didn't have souls? That was a serious discussion in the early 16th century. So there have been changes forced upon us in our thinking about these things as a result of the new parts of the universe that are being discovered, beginning with the New World back in 1492 and beyond. Well, and as you point out, it used to be the case that that we thought of God as as inhabiting a very specific place, you know, straight up. Uh, And as we now know, the universe goes on and on for, you know, it seems like a a further distance uh, with every discovery. Are we running out of places to put God, or is it changing how we conceive of God when we can't put God in a specific physical location? I think we have to... uh, uh, expand our view of what God is and where God is. He is, and I shouldn't use he, but it seems odd to use it. Uh, There is something extraordinarily powerful and unknowable about God. It is like the puppy trying to understand the mind of Sir Isaac Newton. There's a great gulf between us and the deity, and that is where the role of uh, an in-between, a person, to show us something about how God could relate to us as human beings. Because God must do something beyond his grand powers of making a universe if he wants to relate to us. You're talking about Jesus? Of course. You caught on real fast. (laughs) (laughs) Let me turn to you, Dr. Wofford. Um, How much do you think um, the average churchgoer, in your experience, worries about the relationship between science and faith and, and what science would, you know, if we, if we, get into the details of it, how science forces us to maybe change our conceptions of God, as we're talking about with, with the physical location of God, or, or what Dr. Gingrich is saying about expanding our definition or understanding of God. I think the average church person has a lot of questions along those lines, much more so than sometimes we preacher types uh, give credence to. Uh, we like to focus um, so much on the spiritual realm that we tend to miss some of the uh, basic questions that people are wrestling with that relate to the the, the physical universe as it uh, relates to their uh, spiritual understandings. And uh, uh, I've, I've had people of all ages ask me questions that I wouldn't have thought of, uh, but they, they are wondering about um, those kind of details. So it's not just young people, as I mentioned in the introduction to the show. No, not at all. In fact, uh, I've discovered uh, sometimes it's our uh, older adults who are dealing with end-of-life issues. Where am I going? 
Mm. Uh, so when you're talking about where where is God and and that type of thing, those are questions that people wonder about. What's interesting is that the world we live in is so technological and and therefore so infused with science that we almost take it for granted sometimes, and yet we'll get stuck on certain parts of science. You know, evolution is probably the obvious one to point to, where for some reason, even though evolutionary biology influences all kinds of medicine that we use and that we don't think about in those terms, uh, we do get hung up on the theory of evolution and what it means about our own origin as humans and therefore our relationship with God. Do you, do you see that one cropping up? Oh, certainly. Uh, that's, a, that's a hot button topic how, for a lot of folks. How do you answer it? Well, I think there, you know, it's one of those things that people have to wrestle with. Um, and uh, I personally see that the, the scriptures uh, are such that it gives a lot of room for, for dialogue and uh, exploration. Unfortunately, sometimes we get our preconceived notions of how things uh, should be or ought to be, and uh, it precludes the, the discussion. And then, of course, science has, has uh, uh, the perspective of, of the uh, development of, of life. And, you know, how does that, how does that work in with uh, the story of creation? And it makes for some very interesting uh, conversations and dialogue and, and uh, you know, what does it mean to be human in the end? I think that's the real issue that, that uh, people are, are looking to get at is, is, is what does it mean to be a human being? And uh, I think that's where the creation stories eventually point us towards and not so much the details of how did that exactly happen, but uh, what happened for for humanity to actually be born? Uh, what is it that makes us human beings? Dr. Owen Gingrich, I know you're a uh, an expert on Copernicus, and you brought up the world of 500 years ago. And I guess around the time of Copernicus, this was highly controversial. Um, that's an understatement. It was heretical to say that the world revolved around the sun rather than the other way around. Uh, today, a person of faith probably has no issue with the fact that the earth revolves around the sun. Um, do you think that, that we'll eventually look back on evolution in a similar way and say, well, now it poses no problem to faith, but you know, back then in the uh, 20th and 21st centuries, it did? That's an interesting question, because the polls are showing that a majority of Americans do not believe in evolution, and I'm not exactly sure what it is that, that they don't believe in, uh, because obviously our understanding of the age of the world, uh, the great fossil record and so on, uh, which isn't in itself evolution, but it is the background uh, on which the evolutionary picture is painted. I have in my hands the uh, table of contents of a book that I'm working on, on evolution and the wonder of life. It's called The Divine Handiwork, which is a quotation from Copernicus, who said, so vast without any question is the divine handiwork of the almighty creator and it's interesting to look down here through the chapter titles and the very last one is on becoming human which is one of the important sticking points 
and I guess it's a sticking point because the Bible, the Genesis account, would suggest that somehow humans are set apart from the animal world, uh, and and what evolution does is is show uh, distinct interconnection between all species. I think both of these things are true. There is something uniquely different about what human beings can do, but certainly the biological record shows that we're very tightly linked to the animal kingdom. We're talking with Harvard Professor Emeritus Dr. Owen Gingrich and First United Methodist Church Senior Pastor Dr. James Wofford. Uh, Dr. Gingrich will be speaking at First United Methodist in Henderson on Sunday. And uh, coming back to what we were talking about with with the issue of evolution and faith, um, the response, uh, or one response at any rate, is this idea of creationism or perhaps intelligent design. And one critique that I've come across is that what happens is that God gets relegated to the unknown. You have sort of a God of the gaps. Is that how you see it, Dr. Gingrich? It seems to me that the role of God in evolution is quite ambiguous. On the one side, the results of evolution are absolutely staggering and quite extraordinary. And one can see that uh, with a random process of uh, selection of the, from the various mutations, uh, it will, given enough time, work out to make something more and more complicated. But there's something that is somewhat unspecified by this, and that is the mutations. One can't predict them, but in the end, you get enough of them to work out to this incredible result. Is it possible that the mutations are divinely inspired. There's no way to prove that that's not the case, and there's no way to prove that it is the case. So what we have to look at is what makes a coherent system of beliefs, not proofs, but persuasion. And to me, it makes a lot more sense to suppose that there is a divine order and a divine purpose. I always say that I'm just psychologically incapable of believing in a purposeless universe. So there is meaning behind all the, what seems like, randomness in the end. That's what I would believe, because it makes more sense to me. And I assume, Dr. Wofford, that's where you come from as well? A lot of times we get hung up in this, you know, proving or disproving. And the perspective of science is you never prove anything. Uh, or, and in the end, I guess the, the opposite would, would be somewhat true too. But, and so I don't think that uh, we can come to a point of saying that, that you know, science has, has proven that, that God doesn't exist or that God can't be a, pro, a part of the process. But... Like uh, Dr. Gingrich said, after a while you look at the evidence and faith it does take you to a place where science can't go, and that is to make uh, some conclusions upon which to, to base your, your life and your thoughts and beliefs. I guess if you can prove it, it's not faith anymore. 
Well, I don't, uh, you know, a lot of times we think that faith is blind, and I don't, I've never really had that perspective. For me, faith is based upon what we know and learn, and then from what that information gives us, then we can project certain things that we don't always see. Uh, but we but we know that they're true based off of what we have discovered about God or uh, about the way uh, the world works. When you talk about, uh, earlier we talked about you and your relationship to evolution and, and your parishioners, um, I guess that assumes that you're not taking the Bible literally word for word. Well, that's a, <laughs> that's a, that, that's a, uh, a good question. I think a lot of times we have a, come to the point where we don't go deep enough in the scriptures or we don't go deep enough in science. Uh, certainly there's metaphorical dimensions to the scriptures. And uh, at the same time, I think there's more truth there that we, if we understand the, uh, if we understand the, the background that, that there is truth there. So when we start talking about the word literal, uh, I think there is literal truth uh, that's there. Um, it, it's it, how we understand it and, and perceive it and, and uh, likewise apply it. Dr. Gingrich, I guess it would seem when we talk about what, what some people are calling a crisis of faith that we're facing at this moment in history uh, in our culture, um, that's because science is making us question theology and our understanding of God. Do you think that theology should make us question science? That's a little hard to say in our present context, where science is such an important part of our understanding uh, the world about us. But at the same time, uh, the uh, religious aspects are also a very important part of uh, the American scene, the world scene, because it deals with other issues. And there is always a certain overlap where there is a certain amount of of friction and a certain amount of, of reaffirmation of faith. So you have to read these signs very carefully and see how you're going to fit the two rather disparate uh, areas together. But we have to think that in terms of religious ideas, it's not something fixed, monolithic, and unchanging. There are prophets among us still who can see the spiritual meaning of things and the ethical issues, many of which come about because of what science and technology is doing. So it's an ongoing process, and I think you just have to consider that the early parts of Genesis don't contain scientific secrets. As Galileo said, the Bible teaches how to go to heaven, not how the heavens go. We have found that those early parts of the scripture are written from a uh, different cosmology, uh, a simpler kind of understanding, and we know that it is inadequate for us today. So to try to bend things around to make 
Genesis 1 be a literal book about the order in which things were made in a six-day period, uh, that has to be understood as a great pay-on to God's creativity, but not a scientific textbook. So are science and religion, as it's often portrayed in the media, are they at odds? Uh, is, there, is there a conflict between them? There are some people out there who would love to make it into a conflict, uh, and I just don't see it that way. Uh, so uh, what do I say about the uh, so-called new atheists? Uh, some of them I've met, and in some ways I respect but I cannot agree with uh, their particular spin on it. What would you say, Dr. Wofford? Conflict between science and religion? Well, there certainly are those that are trying to make a, a conflict there. Um, it, you know, I was watching a program about uh, two years ago with a, with a very notable scientist that the media likes to uh, put out there, and, and he claimed that he had eliminated a need for God with, uh, with his mathematics as it relates to the, uh, uh, the Big Bang and the, uh, the beginning of the, of the universe. Um, you know, I think just philosophically, once again, if, if as a scientist uh, to say I've proven or disproven is almost disingenuous uh, because it, all you do is you put out the information and, and then you have to draw your own conclusions. New data is always coming in. All new data is always coming in. And, and, and the reason I said that, you know, the Bible has some, you know, literal truth in it. For example, the very first phrase is in the beginning. Well, it wasn't all that long ago that the vast majority of scientists didn't think that there had been a beginning to the universe. And it wasn't until the late 50s, early 60s that the whole concept of the Big Bang came forward and lo and behold it was true all along that there was a beginning and uh, and so they had to adapt the way they uh, were viewing the universe and um, and in a sense it kind of caught up to the Bible at that point um, and but there are always those who who want to try to prove or disprove uh, the existence of God it seems like Dr. Gingrich earlier said something about uh, not fully understanding why people wrestle so much with evolution. What's the church's role? Uh, and, and I'm sure you have an opinion on this because you're bringing Dr. Gingrich in to speak at, right. at your church. Uh, what's the church's role in helping people through uh, this confusion? Well, I think the, the church has a huge role because ultimately uh, we're about exploring truth and and, uh, you know, Jesus came and said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So this whole concept of truth is very important to, to religion, uh, to the Christian faith. And as a result, we need to be dialoguing with uh, the way people are perceiving truth, uh, uh, responding to it. Uh, at times, uh, perhaps, uh, you know, our perspective maybe does shift a little bit. I'd, I'm one of those who, th who think that a lot of times our doctrine isn't wrong, but maybe how we perceive th that doctrine and how it, it interacts with the world around us, uh, it, it gains new nuances. 
And so uh, we need to struggle with those issues and talk about them and, and uh, help people process them. Because if we don't do that, then they're out, they feel like they're out there on their own kind of struggling. You know, where is, where is the, uh, the church on these uh, topics? And Dr. Gingrich, what about the role of scientists in uh, teaching the public perhaps better to understand uh, the science that's out there and, and you know, help have a, a better grasp of it? Well, that's partly why I'm devoting a lot of my time uh, to working on uh, this book on evolution, uh, because I feel that a lot of Christians are know there's a controversy, have no idea why, uh, are confused about it in general. I'd like to help uh, chart a path, a historical path through this, to help people understand what is at stake and uh, both from the uh, Christian viewpoint or a theistic viewpoint that would include uh, a Jewish and a Muslim audience as well, uh, but uh, uh, also what the insights are from science and uh, uh, how it gives us a way to understand the world and how over billions of years the world has been changing. And I know as a historian, you'd like to look back, but if I can just ask you to look forward, when do you think we will uh, maybe move on to the point where this is no longer a controversy, where we're not having uh, uh, court battles about teaching evolution in schools? Ah, you're asking me to peer into a crystal ball, <laughs> which is a little bit murky. I'm afraid uh, uh, I could hardly tell you how how soon that will end. I think that uh, there is the possibility that a majority of people in this country will come to understand uh, what is at stake and what is not at stake, uh, and uh, there will be a greater appreciation of the evolutionary history of the world. But I don't think will e the controversy will ever entirely disappear. After all, there are even today geocentrists who take it seriously that the earth doesn't move. Hmm. <laughs> well, Dr. Owen Gingrich, uh, I look forward to your forthcoming book, and uh, thank you so much for your time today. Surely. Dr. Owen Gingrich is a research professor emeritus of astronomy and the history of science at Harvard. He's also a senior astronomer emeritus at the Smithsonian Astrophysical Observatory, and he'll be speaking at First United Methodist Church in Henderson on Sunday morning and again uh, publicly at four in the afternoon. And we've also been talking with Dr. James Wofford. He's the senior pastor of First United Methodist Church. And thank you so much for your time. And thank you, Micah. You're listening to The Trend. I'm Micah Schweitzer. And I'm Tony Voss. This week in the B segment, Scott Hutchison is back for another Hungry Hoosier, and it pertains to his visit to the home state of Prince, Jesse Ventura, and a particularly unique form of salad. A few weeks ago, life took me to Minnesota. This wasn't my first trip to the land of 10,000 lakes, and I always enjoy the time I spend there. Minnesotans are friendly folks. Not too dissimilar to the characters depicted in Garrison Keillor's fictional Lake Wobegon, where, you know, all the women are strong, all the men are good-looking, and all the children are above average. One of the things I like most about Minnesota is that there's a there there. Minnesota feels like 
Well, Minnesota, distinct from any place else on the earth. If you travel much, you probably understand what I mean. Some places feel unique, while other places feel anything but. As someone interested in food, what the people eat in a given geography is especially fascinating to me. When I travel, I want to get a taste of those local flavors. A few years ago, a friend of mine traveled to New York and raved about how great the Olive Garden was in Times Square. Now, as fine an establishment as the Olive Garden is, I could not imagine visiting New York City only to eat the very same food I could have had back home out by the mall. A couple of decades ago, the term foodways began being used to describe what people eat and why they eat it. Regional foodways emerged as a means to define these culinary traditions in various parts of the U.S. The Southern Foodways Alliance, housed at the University of Mississippi, has done great work in documenting and celebrating this region's food history and food culture. Here in our neck of the woods, we have the Greater Midwest Foodways Alliance. Based in Chicago, this group is dedicated to celebrating, exploring, and preserving unique food traditions and their cultural context in the Midwest states of Illinois, Indiana, Iowa, Kansas, Minnesota, Missouri, Nebraska, Ohio, South Dakota, and Wisconsin. In most of these both established and emerging foodways, it seems to be the simple foods that best define a region and its people. Pulled pork in the southeast, brisket in Texas, these basic foods have been favorites for generations. On my trip to Minnesota, I had some great conversations with some colleagues about foodways in their state. And one of the foods that best defines Minnesota is Jell-O. The Jell-O salad, as it is often called, is a ubiquitous presence at nearly every picnic and potluck in this upper Midwest state. There are hundreds of variations on the Jell-O salad, and favorite recipes can be handed down from generation to generation, like family heirlooms. One of my favorites is something called pretzel salad. I'm not sure how it got its name, because pretzels, although featured in the recipe, are certainly not the main ingredient. To make this, you crush those pretzels and mix them with some sugar and melted butter. This forms the crust that you press into a 9 by 13 pan. You bake the crust in a 400-degree oven, and then when it's cooled, it gets topped with a mixture of cream cheese and Cool Whip. Then a mixture of strawberries and strawberry-flavored Jello goes on top. You can get the complete recipe on the website. I know Minnesotans are not the only people who can enjoy a good Jello salad, so this might be a great dish to take to a, an upcoming picnic or a pitch-in. If you do, however... Don't be surprised if a guy in a Viking jersey wants to be your new best friend. Scott Hutchison works in economic and community development for Purdue and writes about food, family, and community for newspapers, magazines, radio, and TV. The Hungry Hoosier is a production of WBAA Radio in West Lafayette and at the Trend Facebook page. You can find Scott's recipe for pretzel salad and purify yourself in the waters of Lake Minnetonka.